Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Can you draw or can you not draw and actually it kind of freaks you out just thinking about drawing? Maybe it's because we think of drawing as something that we're either good at or, you know, terrible at. To Linda Barry, she's a cartoonist and she teaches art and creativity. That's a problem. Not so much whether we all think that we can draw, although that too, but more generally, the way that we think about learning and doing things, acquiring skills. That's why when she's working with a group of grad students at the University of Wisconsin, folks whose thinking can kind of get locked up, she tries to pair them with partners who uh, sort of can't think that way. One of my students is a mathematician, and he was thinking about, like, numbers. And he said, well, you know, like, there's that question, what is five? And one of the kids went, I'm five. (laughs) (laughs) There's different ways of looking at the world. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to cartoonist Linda Barry. She's teaching a lot these days, and she's trying to get her students to learn how to actually interact with what they're doing. You know, you're looking down at this drawing and you're sort of hating it. I always imagine, I say, now imagine the drawing looking up at you and going, oh, no, not this joker again. You know, they hate me. And, like, how are you ever supposed to come forward to that guy, you know, who's looking down at you like that? She'll also tell me what it's like to be a young cartoonist in a high school where Matt Groening runs the school newspaper. Matt Groening, who created The Simpsons. He made this announcement that he would print anything anybody submitted. And I remember thinking, really? So I tried to make the most horrific, insane, unprintable comics, and he'd always print them. Then later, Linda Holmes and Stephen Thompson of Pop Culture Happy Hour share two very, very different recommendations. And in the process, we will get to talk about both Harry Potter and Brendan Fraser. And I'll tell you why the movie MacGruber, which is basically extrapolated from one one line joke, is actually so amazing. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Linda Barry is a legend in the world of comics. Recently, she's turned her attention to teaching. Her classes at the University of Wisconsin are interdisciplinary. The flyers actually say on them in big letters, no artistic talent required. (laughs) They explore the relationship between drawing, writing, stories, and the brain by doing things like making the students doodle together while they watch Walter Matthau in The Bad News Bears. Her book, The Greatest of Marley's, has just been re-released in hardback. Uh, Linda, it's great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for uh, coming back. I'm delighted. I am delighted. Um, and thank you so much before we started for having a nice chat about talking animal videos on YouTube with me. Uh, it meant a lot to me. Well, talking animals are really the future and the past. <laughs> <laughs> They're sort of, yeah, they, they sort of continue in both directions. You know, when I was a little girl, they really made me angry. 
um, for some reason, I got very realistic once when I was in, I think I was in grade school and I learned the meaning of um, fiction and nonfiction. And the way that it was explained to me <laughs> was that nonfiction means not lying and fiction <laughs> means lying. And so I would just look at like, I remember it was a book called Space Cat and Space Cat could talk and go into space and I'd say, that's fiction. <laughs> I was really angry about talking animals. Now I just, you know, I do all the voices for all animals that I see. And it's a real nightmare when people have me over because, you know, I do a different voice for their dogs. And um... <laughs> But then I, then I tried to imagine teaching someone that young, like, the nature of capital T truth. Uh-huh. That seems pretty challenging. Yeah, well, they could teach you some things about it. That's one of the things I'm doing here at the university is I'm working with grad students and I'm particularly interested in PhD students who are about to write their dissertations because they all look like they're in prison in Siberia and that they've been crying for a thousand years. And um, I had this idea to to match them up with four-year-olds as (laughs) (laughs) co-researchers. And it has turned out to be an amazing thing. Because it turn, it seems that when you're really trying to figure something out, the worst thing you can do is um, concentrate super hard. <laughs> That's not where our insight comes from. And there's something about hanging around these kids who have such an unusual way of thinking – not unusual way of thinking about the world, but a, but a way that we, we forget. For example, I have a um, – one of my students is a mathematician. And he was thinking about, like, numbers. And he said, well, you know, like, there's that question, what is five? And one of the kids went, I'm five. (laughs) 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 I don't know what it is. They just, they, they, they allow a certain kind of shift of thinking that I think is really valuable to academic work. Um, But I'm a cartoonist, so I always think that. I think things like that. Linda, where are you getting these children? Are you ordering them from the Texas Instruments catalog? No, um, although uh, if I could, I would. Um, I definitely would. Uh, There are are, uh, three uh, pre-K schools on campus, and so um, I'm uh, I'm – using those schools um, to send my students to. I was there um, working with kids today. When you when you got uh, an invitation or made a pitch to be an associate professor or whatever your title is at the University of Wisconsin, why was your idea not, hey, they've got a art majors there. I'll teach them how to make comics. Well, I guess the, the reason I came to the university was because um, – I have been chasing down this idea about what is an image or what's the thing that's kind of at the center of everything we call the arts. And I would argue it's it's at the very center of what we call humor. Um, so I had gotten – I've been always curious about this and very curious about why people um, give up on drawing um, so early in life but still long to do it. And I had gotten as far as I could in my own practice and I had been able to teach workshops – for maybe a week. That was the longest. So there was a residency position here. Um, and I thought, I, well, if I could only work with students for a semester, that would give me more information. And then I just fell totally in love with teaching and really fell in love with 
um, walking people back into drawing, people who have completely given up on it, um, and especially people who don't have any interest in the arts in particular. Um, and cartooning is a completely different way of drawing than uh, representational drawing. It's much more aligned to the kind of uh, drawing that kids do. So, you know, when you said to the to the listeners, do you think you can't draw? I mean, most people are so horrified by their own drawing that I kept trying to think of what am I seeing, you know, when somebody draws something and they look horrified. And I realized the only thing I can compare it to is accidental discharge of bodily fluids. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what people are that mortified. Um, But I can show them that uh, that there is this kind of drawing that everyone can do. And um, and it's really fun. And it also I don't know how to explain it. It's an extra way of think. It's an extra way of thinking about something. An extra way of uh, problem solving. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Coming up, my guest Linda Barry will tell us about her Girl Scout leader, who, without a doubt, was crazier than your Girl Scout leader. You know, I mentioned the uh, the Bad News Bears mm-hmm. as a first first class activity. Yeah, um, it's a very important uh, movie about the nature of creativity. <laughs> It is. It's. I You're... mean, it's almost certainly the greatest movie in which uh, the protagonist calls a child in the N-word. Well, and they call each other all kinds of words. There's all kinds of words in that movie. There's all kinds of words. It's a movie that could never be um, written uh, now or would never be produced now, and it would surely never get the G rating that it had when I was a kid. But it's a really amazing movie about, you know, these loser kids and what happens when you push them so hard that they're getting somewhere, but then you push them so hard that the whole joy of things is gone? And I think that's kind of what, in a way, what happens to drawing. And also about, um, it's well, Walter Matthau is a genius, but um, watching Walter Matthau have this revelation of that it isn't winning. It is how you play the game, but it's not corny. And also he gives the kids beer, which you can't do, you know, now forever. You know, when I watched that movie, I, I had this little league coach named Tim. And as an adult, I mean, I was seven and eight, I want to say, when I was on his team. And as an adult, I think back, and I'm not convinced he wasn't drunk. Yeah. Um, and he definitely had a car that only had one door. <laughs> like, that is crystal clear. <laughs> but <laughs> there was something really great about playing on that team. Yeah. Yeah, it's like my Girl Scout leader was... My Girl Scout leader was a t- total criminal, and um, she she <laughs> drove us. To, we sold more cookies than anyone. I mean, she was on us to sell them, and you know, um, she also smoked during all the meetings. And whenever we had a camping trip, we were all assigned to bring meat, um, lots of meat, and she would just lock it in her freezer, and we just all have macaroni and cheese on that. Anyway, she ended up she ended up escaping with the Girl Scout cookie money. She just split. I remember coming to a meeting and it was like her windows were open and the curtains were blowing. <laughs> the house was empty. All the Girl Scout money was gone. And I think of her fondly, really. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I personally, I mean, you don't know me very well, um, but why do you think I was so terrified like viscerally terrified as I read your book and it suggested that I do things like draw a spiral because you wanna <laughs> you know it's that thing about look like, I remember when I was a kid I had a really freaky feeling about looking out of tall building windows because it just the temptation to throw yourself out was just you know it tickles. <laughs> 
And I am curious about why people are so flipped out by making a line on a piece of paper. I think it's a really good question about why what, and what happened. And, you know, I, try, I trace it back to there's this switch. Um, you know, these little kids that I'm working with, and one of the things they do for my grad students and for me too, is they take that piece of paper and they transform it back into a place for an experience. Um, so instead of it being this thing that, you know, you're making a nice drawing and then when you're done it's good or bad, it's, a, it's actually a place for an experience. And as you're drawing... It's as if the thing is transforming right in, in front of their eyes. And um, so when people quit drawing is when that piece of paper goes from being a place into a thing, you know, that you can put on the wall and that you can sort of decide if it's a good drawing or a bad drawing. And sometimes I ask my students to think of their drawings as being able to see them. So if you imagine, you know, you're looking down at this drawing and you're sort of hating it. I always imagine, I say, now imagine the drawing looking up at you and going, oh, no, not this joker again. You know, they hate me. And like, how are you ever supposed to come forward to that guy, you know, who's looking down at you like that? And um <laughs> And it's also also like a baby, you know. The baby's born, and you go, "Ooh, I, you know that? I don't think that was such a good baby." <laughs> you can't really put it back, right? You <laughs> you kind of have to just let this thing happen. And um, so, one of the things that a really easy thing that I um, have my students do is you fold, sort of fold a piece of paper so that you have eight chambers, and you just quickly draw uh, eight head shapes. And then follow with eyes and then any mark for the nose, then any mark for the mouth, et cetera, the, eye, the ears and everything. So you kind of have them all there. You did it really fast. And then I'll say to them, okay, look at them. Which one's drunk? And they know. <laughs> they say, that dude's drunk. Okay, which one's bored? They know that too. And it's very clear um, kind of who's in what mood. They didn't mean to do that, but the mood is there anyway. And then you can say, okay, the drunk guy and the bloated guy, because you can also ask them which one's bloated. <laughs> They're going to have a conversation. What do they say to each other? So it, it's faster than thinking. Again, it's back to that intuitive or this back of the mind kind of uh, working that's very different than doing something with intention or doing something that, you know, academics ask students to do, which is to always use argumentative reasoning. There's another kind of reasoning. There's another way of doing it. And, you know, humor is the best example of that because how can it be that you can um, say, imagine this, imagine this, imagine this, and then imagine this, and somebody's body just starts to shake? How does it do that? And why does it do that? Or how can it be that a drawing on a piece of paper can make somebody shoot you? kind of interesting. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed bringing that up. Well, yeah. Well, I think about it. You know, how is it that I can draw something on a piece of paper and hold it up to somebody and they will really have to hold themselves back from hitting me in the face? You know, so I find this stuff to be very powerful. And um, I'm thinking a lot about the fact that the arts, um, that the two groups that are wiping the arts out, that kind of one with some understanding of the powers, you look at ISIS blowing up all this stuff, all these beautiful old things, and then you look at the public school system getting rid of the arts. <laughs> and I just think, okay, both of you know, but one of you knows more than the other that this stuff's really, really powerful. And the other one, like the public schools, just think that it's taking up space that could be used for something better, which I think is like looking at your internal organs and saying, that liver thing, we'd have a lot more room if we got rid of that. It's like, it's the liver! <laughs> <laughs> I One of the things that I found really um, 
really inspiring in your book was a question that you you actually mentioned it a couple times in your class materials, which is if somebody looks at your drawing and judges it negatively, how does it affect the drawing? It doesn't. It doesn't do anything to the drawing. Whether you like it or you don't like it, the drawing's still there. I wish I had known that about myself, in a way, in the seventh grade. You know, somebody's digging me or not digging me, I'm still stuck being me, you know? <laughs> but yeah, that's the... And one of the, and getting past I like it or I don't like it, um, kids don't have that problem. But I mean, little kids don't have that problem. But once you hit about um, 11 or 12 and then all the way up for the rest of your life, that liking or not liking is the first thing that people say about something. And it's like, uh, you know, that's the least interesting thing you can tell me about what's going on with this drawing. Do you find you have that reaction to your own work? I don't. But I've been doing this for a really, really long time. And I was lucky enough to kind of learn how to think about images in a different way So I'm almost 60, and I was uh, 19 when I first met my teacher, Marilyn Frasca, who talked to me about um, this idea of of seeing what's there. And so, no, I don't have – I don't look at my work and say I like it or I don't like it. You know, I guess it would be sort of like saying that to my kidneys. I'm grateful. I don't say I like them. I love – I do love my kidneys, but I don't (laughs) – but I I think of it more like an organ or like my skin or something or my feet – um, they're, they're a means of getting me somewhere. And, and I think of uh, drawing as sort of this ability. It's sort of like, again, I think of it as like an organ um, or, or a corollary to the immune system. And uh, I'm really interested in um, getting people to, once they get can stand to draw, see how they can take in um, a situation and they can either draw it or they can write words about it. And they can, they can go back and forth. It can be the same image, the same situation, but you can say it either in drawing or in um, writing. And watching people get very comfortable with that, so comfortable that they don't even notice they're doing it anymore. Um, but in the beginning, my students are pretty terrified, I have to say, in, in general. If Matt Groening ran your school newspaper with the promise that every comic you wrote would get published, how far would you go to test his resolve? My guest, Linda Berry, will tell me how far she went after the break, and she's Linda Barry, so it's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. Discover other great podcasts, stories from your local station, and exclusive bonus content. Right now, only on NPR One, you can hear a story from the Planet Money team about oil and how it's used in a lot of the basic things we use and eat. One surprising example, oil is the active ingredient in aspirin. Aspirin! That story is only on NPR One. Just go to your app store, download NPR One, and search for the word aspirin. The story will be at the top of the search results. Awesome exclusives, much more, all on NPR One. Support for NPR and the following message come from Soylent, the nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. And now introducing Coffeeist a balanced breakfast blended with lightly roasted coffee and a hint of chocolate flavor. It's an energizing morning meal too convenient to skip. And if you need another reason to feel good about squeezing breakfast into your day, for every case of coffeeist purchased, a meal is donated to those in need through the World Food Program USA. Receive 10% off your first subscription order at Soylent.com with discount code NPR. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to cartoonist Linda Barry. She is the best. Her book, The Greatest of Marley's, has just been re-released in hardback. You know, something I think about a lot is I had this conversation with this uh, dude called Seth Godin a couple of years ago, and he's like a marketing guru, right? Mm-hmm. But he's a he's a very nice one and a very uh, he makes the a world nice a better place. Marketing guru. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I feel like I should definitely qualify that if I'm going to describe him as a marketing guru. He's yeah, a guy who really makes the world a better place. I think, and you know, he made this great book about doing creative work for a living. And there was sort of this ultimate question, which was uh, one that he had a really hard time answering in the book. And so I asked him about it. And it was basically like, well, if everybody does work that they think is terrible and everybody only learns by being terrible and it takes a really long time of flying blind before you can feel like you can see in front of your plane – then how do you ultimately know if you're any good and it's something that's worth applying your energy to? And, uh, you know, you sort of like, I don't know. I mean, hopefully you've like read a lot of books so you can tell if your book is good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, It's a hard question, right? It it is in a way. um, uh, I guess it's, you know... uh, I guess for me it would be to reverse it. What if this stuff was taken away from you? And and um, so so it's not a question of whether you're good or not, but somehow this thing that uh, that you're trying to do, you're forbidden to do, or you could no longer do it. Um, then I think you'd start to understand the function it was, the role it had in your life, because most people think you know the reason to write a book is so other people will dig it and. Um, then maybe you'll be an author, and I don't know what else the fantasy is after that. Um, but for me, it's this. It's, it's, um, I, had a, I had a nephew. I always love to ask kids this question and adults too. Um, you know that – remember when you were laying in bed and you were a kid and you would think, okay, I can only pick one superpower. What will it be? You know, like, like you're going to get any of them. But it was usually a choice between time travel, um, turning invisible, and flying. Right. Those are usually the three. And so um, if you ask an adult, would you like to be able to fly, time travel and turn invisible? Adults are kind of like only if I can make a living at it. (laughs) And and kids are like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. And my nephew said this brilliant thing to me. He goes, oh, I want to time travel. He goes, but I want a time machine that has this that has this knob on it that goes future, past and meanwhile, the meanwhile knob. The meanwhile knob, it's like that's what art is to me. And, um, I, and, it, and it's a way that it accordions out sort of the, the days that you have on this earth. So you can be sitting at a bus stop, but if you're reading a book um, that was written about Vietnam in 1968, you're also there. You're in these two places meanwhile. And so when I think about um, when the reason I make comics and the reason I write stories is not so much – so that people will dig me, although that's a that's a lovely thing when people do. It's because I, life without it isn't that interesting. And I really do feel like I get to time travel, fly, and turn invisible when I do this stuff. And I do feel like my the days that I have on this earth, the real number of days, are completely multiplied by either reading someone else's work or, or making my own work. So that to me is a, you know, it's like having a spaceship, only it's a pen. 
I want to know why specifically you came to cartooning and not uh, making visual art or writing. I did. Um, you know, I, I trained as a painter. That's what I thought I was going to be. But uh, something – while I was making these paintings and trying so hard to do, you know – I feel sorry for the art students in most universities and colleges because they're tasked with finding something that's completely original and sort of breaking the the tradition. And, you know, how often can anybody do that? And I was making these pretty serious pictures, but at the same time I just started making these little silly comics to make a girlfriend of mine laugh, and she'd laugh, so I made more comics. And at this, and then also Matt Groening of The Simpsons. He was our, um, he was the guy that ran the st- school newspaper. He was a good friend of mine, and he made this announcement that he would print anything anybody submitted. And I remember thinking, <laughs> really? So I tried to make the most horrific, insane, unprintable comics, and he'd always print them. And so there was something about comics that was much more alive than art for me, and it was. Um, there was a lot less pressure about it, and um, it turns out that there was a long tradition, and I just I just started to like it. And then at the same time, um, this would have been in 1978 or 1980, uh, the alternative papers started to come around. They're kind of gone now, but they came around, and they were around for 30 years, and they needed alternative cartoonists, so I somehow had a job doing that. And I developed these characters, you know, who I... Uh, they were my pals for 30 years. And I remember one night I had been out with friends and I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I realized that they weren't real and I was never going to meet them. And I started crying because it was so sad. And then in the morning I realized, no, I was just really drunk. It wasn't that sad at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a crisis when I woke up. <laughs> I don't want to let this thing about trying to create comics so distressing that Matt Groening would censor them from the college newspaper pass Mm -hmm. without getting some examples. All right. So one of the examples was a little girl who's um, had a father who was reading the newspaper who wasn't really paying attention to her. And he's saying, uh, what else did you learn in school today? And she manages to uh, have her arms and legs drop off her torso. Um, I did. I mean, I just tried to come up with, oh, the one was a voodoo hot dog, like a hot dog that was like like completely covered with pins delivered to somebody. And, um, you know, he'd print everything. He printed everything. And then I would write outraged letters to the editor about stuff that happened to me when I was like nine. <laughs> Dear editor. I took a sleeping bag. I did. I took a sleeping bag to a girl to Girl Scouts with my crazy Girl Scout um, leader. And my dad, I guess, had borrowed it or somebody had borrowed it. I don't know who borrowed it. But I was in it and we were all around the campfire and I found something at the bottom of it. And it was a pair of men's underwear, <laughs> which was horrifying. And so I wrote an outrage letter to the editor about that and Matt printed it. It seems like a big appeal of comics for you was that they naturally generated in you this sense of play, you know, this sense of the appeal, you know, the experience appealed rather than the product in the way that you're describing trying to get to with your class. 
Yeah, yeah. But they're also a really good vehicle for very sad stories, too. And I guess if I'm known for anything in, in terms of what I did in, in the whole comics world was really write very sad uh, stories uh, about kids and um, in four panels. And when my work first came out, the four-panel tradition set-up, set-up, set-up punchline um, was so fixed that even if you were telling a sad story, people would become outraged. They'd say, you know, child abuse isn't funny or, you know, kids who are really depressed aren't funny. And I'd be, yeah, it's a sad strip. And they'd go, oh, oh. <laughs> but that's that's gone now. I mean, all that stuff used to, it's wild to think. I just didn't think the world would get square again. <laughs> I didn't. I really thought the hippies were, whoa, we made it. It's like, no, you didn't. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about practical, actual activities that you do in your class that you describe in this book um, that someone who is listening at home and thinks, oh, I'm incapable of making art, uh, someone like me, uh, can just do. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I'd have you do is I'd have you uh, – Get an index card or four index cards, and I'd have you write down four questions that are on your mind right now. And they can be questions about work or, um, you know, questions about the way the world is or questions about, um, uh, I don't know, when you're finally going to get around to getting your, the, your car's oil change. Anyway, I'd have you write those four questions down. Then I'd have you take a piece of regular 8.5 by 11-inch copier paper. And, and this is actually more fun to do with people, but if, even if you're by yourself, it'll work. You fold it into quarters, and then I'd have you make like a squiggle in one of the squares and then a closed shape. So a closed shape just means, you know, where one side of the line meets another side. So it can be a squiggle, a square, whatever. Um, and I'd have you do that so that there was a squiggle, a closed shape, a closed shape, and a squiggle in all four boxes. Then I'd have you set a timer for two minutes and you have two minutes to turn that first squiggle into a monster. Everybody can do it. Um, there's no way a monster actually looks. So if you're freaked out about, I'm not sure if I'm doing this right, you know, there's no way to do it right or wrong. So you have two minutes to turn that one into a monster. Then we repeat that. So in the end, you'd have four monsters, right? Then I'd say, take those four questions and figure out which monster is asking which question. And you'll know. And then I say... Okay, so take one of those monsters and um, same thing, uh, fold a piece of paper into quarters. Just pick one of those monsters and now draw its parents. You'll know how to do that. I mean, every little kid, everybody I've tried this with knows how to do it. They don't, And they're also, people get enchanted. It's like, shoot, I know how to do this. It's like, yeah, you do. Um, and then you can take those two monsters and you can draw their parents. And then, so then you end up having... All these characters who kind of haven't existed before. And then you go back and you see that that one monster that's asking a question. For instance, um, one of my grad students, is one of her uh, thesis questions is, what is participation? That's one of the questions. So maybe it's a, there's a monster asking, what is participation? <laughs> and then you just pick another one of the monsters and you draw them. And as they're looking at each other, it's as if you start to hear the conversation happen. You know, I, that's the thing that people don't know. They think somehow you have to plan it out before you draw it, and it's in the drawing it that happens. And 
one of the ways this was really brought home to me was I was at a Renaissance fair, which I don't recommend for anyone to go to one, but maybe you will just be there. Don't go on mescaline. Whatever you do, do not do that. Um, And if you are on mescaline, don't stare at people eating the giant turkey legs. Um, But say you you manage to get to the Renaissance Fair, and there's um, these, I saw these two guys, and they were Shakespearean actors, and they said, oh, we're doing garbage Shakespeare. And they had a piece of chalk, and they said, here's you know, here's the Shakespeare, here's the Globe Theater. We're going to do a scene from Romeo and Juliet. And one picked up a cigarette butt and the other picked up a bottle cap and they started to do Romeo and Juliet. And we're all like staring at the cigarette butt and the bottle cap like, oh, how's this going to come out? <laughs> but there was just something about wiggling these two objects and saying that they were real and having this conversation that that lifted that stuff right off of the page that really made the uh, – the story that they were telling happened. And it's the same thing with comics, that the minute that you just have one character talking to another one, it's as if the back of the mind just supplies the um, the dialogue for you. And people get very, very happy um, when they're able to do this. They get very happy and they get really surprised um, that they can do it and then they want to do it some more. So that's what I'd say is you start with monsters. I mean, we always should. There are, they're here for a reason. They're our good pals. Coming up, my guest Linda Berry will tell us why feelings are the worst thing you can ever write in a journal. Do you find that some of your students take to this more easily than others and more comfortably? Yeah, but what's surprising is they pretty much all do. I mean, they pretty much all uh, end up swinging. Um and I think part of it is because is, is because we are there's a they have to write a lot to be in the class they have to do a whole lot of writing, so we end up doing a whole lot of autobiographical writing in the beginning, and the comics are autobiographical. And I think there's something about seeing your own experience reflected, especially I have them do stuff really fast. I mean, part of of being in like uh, the way we keep a diary, for example is you um, take a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, and you divide, you draw a border and you divide it um, in half uh, um, horizontally. And then I'll have them start, right, this is how we're doing it um, uh, the last two weeks. I'll have them start by just drawing a scene from, from yesterday, the first one that comes to your mind. They have to spend three minutes doing that. And then three minutes writing about what that scene is. And then they take, have to take another piece of paper and think of a kind of a sister scene or an echo scene from something that happened in their past. It could be recent past or when they were little. And same thing, draw that and write about it. And then we repeat that. Um, and what starts to happen is you start to notice what you notice or you start to n- find out things about yourself that you didn't know. For example, one of the things I didn't know about myself before I started <laughs> doing this particular um this particular form of, of keeping a diary is I'm obsessed with people's hair. I mean, over and over again, there'd be like no details about almost anything but someone's hair. And um, so much so, <laughs> that, and, I mean, I had no clue I was so obsessed with people's hair. And recently, I'm really obsessed with um, what men do to try to hide the fact that they're bald. <laughs> There's this new stuff. That I don't know what it is. It's like Christmas flocking or something. It, it, but you just like you put you salt your hair with it, 
and it somehow grows hair. It's the most insane thing I've ever seen. And my husband pointed out that I had been looking at YouTube videos for 90 minutes last night just going, can you believe this? Can you believe this? And once again, I came to myself going, you're looking at videos about hair again. So I think what they, they I think that one of the things the students um, like is like finding out these things about yourself and, and um, stuff that you really are interested in, um, even if it might not make sense to the top of the mind, the back of the mind, you know, hangs on. Do you get an extra big kick out of people who have an extra big transformation in the class? Yeah. Well, what I love, I love seeing somebody. Oh, I love the ones who come in um, who do not draw at all um, and by the end of the semester are doing spectacular work. And the cool thing about comics is the people who quit drawing around the time they were 10 or 12, those people have a much quicker route to um, very original work because uh, that drawing style from when they were little is sort of intact. And so if I can get them to just stand the way that they draw, it's sort of like being able to stand your handwriting. If you can stand the way that they draw long enough, all of a sudden this completely original style shows up. I have a student who is, um, what is he? He's an he's a, he's a acrobat and a mechanical engineer and a master plumber, and he didn't draw at all um, in September. And he's done some of the most spectacular works he, he And his idea of what a book is um, is completely different than the rest of the class. For example, he did, um, you know, that uh, that little thing, um, uh, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe. Right. He did this amazing, um, his assignment was, to, he, he chose that one. So he goes, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. And then he wrote, what happened to those kids? <laughs> and it's this, um, Coco Chanel was what, he made up all these people. <laughs> Who <laughs> grew up in a shoe, and what happened to them? What? One invented steel-toed boots. <laughs> really good in a fight, but it was just amazing to watch. And his style is so original. Um, so I see that over and over again. Um, with people who didn't draw, and for whom now drawing is a major part of their life, not in order to make a living at it, but because it's a really good, first of all, it's really it's really enjoyable to do, but it's a really good means of thinking stuff out and exploring stuff, and particularly for if you're stuck having to answer academic problems, it's a really interesting way of trying to do that. You know, when you are doing a practice like the practice that you advocate here, which is substantially about just separating some time out of your life uh, to do something for its own, for the experience of doing it. You know, you, you're talking about, you know, this book takes the form of a composition book and you're talking about filling a composition book uh, with journal type stuff in a variety of forms. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times that starts out really cool and fun. Um, and then you feel like you're running out of steam and because of this obligation to fill a page, you just want to fill it with a thing about how much you hate having to fill a page. Yeah. Isn't that sad when people do that? Well, yeah, well, that's the the hardest part about keeping a diary is, one, who are you keeping it for? And there's something about the fact that, um, you know, you you do start out with all this 
promise and feeling like, all right, I'm going to do it. And uh, I'm going to draw everything I eat every day for a year. And, you know, you make it for about four days before it starts to. And then you have to hide from it because then the comp book just looks at you and like like a little puppy, like, <laughs> you know. And um, I think people have tons of diaries that they've started. So, you know, for me, the trick is always to to switch it up, to have different ways of doing it. Um, sometimes, uh, one week I'll just tell them, you just write about anything that's round. <laughs> well, look in the room, look around you. And anybody who's listening, I know your eyes are looking and you're finding all these round things. You're going, dang, I guess I could write about that. Um, or sometimes I'll have them, uh, just, uh, oftentimes it's, oh, a really good thing is they have to write down things that they overhear. And so we, I try to give a new, a switch it up every week to figure out a, a, a way to do it. And the last thing I want them doing is just writing about feelings. Um, that's where there's nothing, I just don't think a whole lot happens when you're just writing about feelings. And certainly there's not a, a lot left behind. I had a friend who was, um, told me the story of finding his high school yearbook, I mean f- high school journals, and he was super excited about reading them over, which means you know he was over 50. And he, um, he said he poured this beer and he opens up uh, his journals and he starts to read it and he says it was just feelings. Feelings, feelings. There was no details at all. It was just feelings. And he said, it, he goes, Linda, it was so sad. It was like finding original footage of the Battle of Waterloo, only it was shot by a monkey. So there's no pictures of Napoleon. It's just bananas, bananas, bananas. <laughs> you, include, so I, you include a kind of a, a slightly, um, slightly self-pitying four-panel strip that you drew in the book. Yeah. And then you – and it's, you know, it's pretty, but it is, uh, you know, it is a little self-pitying – it's about being tired, yeah. And then next next to it, <laughs> you can tell me what you put next to it. Next to it is one of my students' drawings. Sometimes I'll have them, um, they have to draw, uh, sometimes I'll give them a minute to draw. Um, they only have a minute and they have to draw 16 different characters, one minute each. And then they have to take one of those characters and turn it into a four panel. So someone drew a Viking and um, so it's a four panel <laughs> of a Viking. Is it in panel three? He shows his ass. Yeah, yeah, and, just... and that's it. And then he goes back to being a Viking. And stoic so my question... Viking, stoic Viking, <laughs> Viking with his butt showing with lines coming out of it. Stoic Viking. Viking. Yeah. And then so I, I compare them and just say which one has, gives you more energy. <laughs> and it's. It's really clear the one where burr, 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 I'm working so hard and I'm so tired. Um, no, the Viking showing his ass, which was drawn in probably five minutes total, is way more powerful. What is the hardest thing for you now as an almost 60-year-old who's been, you know, engaged in this practice and um, a, you know, also a skilled and acclaimed artist for many, many years? The hardest thing is time um, right now uh, because I, I fall so in love with my students and I fall so in love with their work. And then now that I have the opportunity to work with really young people who – and I'm also working at the elementary school. So the hardest thing is just balancing time. I don't have uh, the time that I'd like to be able to stare at the work as long as I want to. The other hardest thing is I hate giving them their work back. I hate it. I know they're not going to take care of it. I know they don't love it the way that I do. I want to steal it. 
Um, so that's a that's a tough thing too. But it's time. Um, you know, it's funny because there's this idea about teaching. And when you kind of look at it on the surface, you know, you teach two classes and they take this long. But man, it's round the clock work. If you if you're really into this, your students and really into what's going on, it's just round the clock. So that's the that's probably the hardest thing for me, um, is time. Linda, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you again. Linda Barry's book, The Greatest of Marley's, has just been re-released with some brand new comics, I should add, in hardback. I found a diary underneath the tree. And started... After the break, our friends from Pop Culture Happy Hour will tell us about a rom-com with Harry Potter and a children's TV show from the 1960s. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Why not try Planet Money? It's a show that explains the economic forces that shape your life, but they say it sounds like hanging out at a bar with your closest friends. Right now, they're getting into the oil business and actually buying physical crude oil and following it through every step of the way from ground to gas tank to see who the people are who actually make our oil. Find Planet Money on NPR One or at npr.org slash podcasts. I'm Hal Lublin. I'm Danielle Radford. I am Michael Eagle. And we are the hosts of Tights and Fights, Maximum Fun's newest podcast dedicated to all things wrestling. We'll be talking about Sasha Banks, the women's revolution, Sasha Banks, the brand split, and Sasha Banks' wigs. And we'll also be talking about wrestler fashion. Some wrestlers wear too many clothes. Some wrestlers don't wear enough clothes at all. And I'll be doing impressions of all your favorite wrestlers. New episodes Thursdays on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah, dig it. Tights and Fights Podcast. Tights and Fights. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Last year, we did a live show in Washington, D.C., and we invited two of our favorite pop culture critics to come down and visit us. Here are Linda Holmes and Stephen Thompson from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour telling us about two of their all-time favorite things. Okay, so we are at the at the beautiful headquarters of NPR here in Washington, D.C., amazing place. And um, so we thought well, while we're here, it would be crazy not to take advantage of the amazing NPR personalities who I think live here. I don't know. I wasn't really... But anyway, we are excited to have two of our pals from the Pop Culture Happy Hour here to share some all-time favorite pop culture stuff with you. Please welcome Linda Holmes and Stephen Thompson. Hey, pals. Hey. Hey. How do you like those chairs? I heard that they came from Jarl Moan's office. Yeah, I don't. I don't hang out up there, so I wouldn't know. I will, but I will need this chair back. When you're... <laughs> I, mean, they, they... I, li- I just like the idea that the CEO's office is all upholstered in like heather gray felt, yeah. and then just uh, downstairs in like the bullpen or whatever, just the entire staff of NPR are sitting at those little elementary school chess <laughs> desk chair things. Yeah. The... No, no, no. It's I, not, not like that. I actually tried to sit in one of these before, and they released the hounds. <laughs> so, so. I'm, it's, uh, it's nice. I'm, I'm a little nervous, just sense memory. But... Yeah. It's they're comfy. I'm, I'm keeping this. I'm glad. I'm glad, I'm glad that you guys are comfortable. 
let's get into the recommendations. Um, so, Linda, I guess given your history uh, of pop culture tastes, I shouldn't be surprised that your pick is a romantic comedy. It is a romantic comedy. Um, I guess I didn't know that Daniel Radcliffe was in movies other than Harry Potter. <laughs> More's the pity. More's the pity. <laughs> so tell me about the tell me about the Daniel Radcliffe uh, uh, romantic comedy that you like enough to recommend to this audience of hundreds of strangers. Okay. <laughs> so to the hundreds of strangers, I would say uh, the movie is called What If, and it stars Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan. It was originally I originally saw it at the Toronto Film Festival a couple of years ago when it was under the title The F Word. But, um, and everyone else in the world got it as the F word, but Americans got it as what if, because we're <laughs> babies, Linda, apparently. Linda, let's, let's check out a clip from the movie. Yeah, that was supposed to be an anonymous fridge magnet card. And here I am quietly judging you. Oh, I can handle it. I've humiliated myself much more thoroughly. Oh, ah. Here it is. Here it is. Hi. Oh, did you guys meet? Uh, kind of, yeah. Wallace, Hi. this is my cousin Chantry. Hi. Chantry, this is my college roommate Wallace. You're Wallace. Yep. This is the first time he's been outside in my career. Wow. Yeah. Hi, you do look pale. I just assumed you were like anemic or partially albino. It's both, actually. He's been hibernating like an adorable little bear cub because of his broken heart. Oh. Please stop telling people that and striking my face. <laughs> Uh-huh. A lot of sassy dialogue, Linda. There is a lot of sassy dialogue, and that, uh, of course, is also Adam Driver, who plays his um, buddy, or, uh, yeah, buddy. And so in this movie, um, those two people um, meet at the fridge, doing the fridge mag- magnet poetry. Um, it does have in it certain romantic comedy conventions, some of which play out in unpredictable ways up to a point. I mean, it's a romantic <laughs> comedy. You're telling me that they get together at the end. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, they do. But the way, it's the journey, Jesse. It's the journey. And the, on this journey, for example, Adam Driver will at one point during this movie yell, I just had sex and I'm about to eat nachos. It's great. I mean, that seems like, that seems like pretty much enough to recommend it, right? It is. It is. That's my, that's my theory. But it's, you're, a, it's, it's really fun. You're like a, ser- you're like a serious uh, romantic comedy connoisseur. I am. I am. I have. Yes. I am. So what? Like what? Partic- what? What is it particularly about this besides just the mere presence of Adam Driver, which is the evidence you've given us so far? <laughs> well, that, yeah. That that means that it should be in 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 these folks at least view watch lists, if not personal pantheons. Okay, so with any movie like this, it mostly is about, despite the fact that you've already made fun of me, the sassy dialogue. The sassy dialogue is what makes most romantic comedies worth watching. This one has a lot of fun chat. It has a lot of fun kind of um, slightly uh, slightly dirty um, conversation as these people are sort of becoming friends. Because in the original title, the F word, the F word is friends. Um, Can I tell you, I, my friend uh, Dave Shumka... Uh, who hosts one of our podcasts, Stop Podcasting Yourself, which I'm sure there's some fans here, right? Um, uh, wasn't allowed to say the word fart uh, as a child. Uh, he, had, he referred to them as the F word for dirts. 
So when you said that the movie was named the F word, <laughs> rather than thinking any of the profanities associated with that, I just thought it meant F word for dirts. <laughs> now, see, that is the kind of adorable story that would fit right into a romantic comedy. Right there. <laughs> and so I, I am a sucker for kind of like, like uh, good, good chatter, because that is, in fact, why people wind up liking each other in most cases. Um, Stephen, let's talk about your recommendation. Um, uh, you took, or you're taking us all the way to 1967, mm-hmm. uh, a children's television show called George of the Jungle. Yes. Um, but, not to be confused with the Brendan Fraser movies of later vintage. Wait, there's multiple Brendan Fraser, there, George of the Jungle? I, I, I'm, af- I'm afraid there are. Yes. You know what, though? I kind of like Brendan Fraser. Do you kind of like I, him? You know what? I, I, I wouldn't consider him an enemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we just found a much more impressive uh, vein to, to mine. <laughs> Who would you say is on your Hollywood enemies list? <laughs> I, I actually, this is, this is true. I swear it is true. I keep a large whiteboard behind my desk. Uh, that says Stephen's Enemies List <laughs> on it. It's mostly uh, All Songs Considered hosts Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton. <laughs> and, and whenever I start a new one, whenever I erase it and start over, it's like Stephen's Enemies List, Bob Boylan, Robin Hilton. And then just whoever gets added from there. I never okay. get on it. I'm still trying. <laughs> um, so you, are, and, and you, we are not even just dealing with George of the Jungle, the television show. No. We are dealing with one of the sub-shows of the George of the Jungle television show. <laughs> I don't, that is to say, like, you're not recommending Garfield. You're recommending U.S. Acres. <laughs> I, I, I realize this might be a little esoteric. I uh-huh. was told to bring something that people might not know. And yeah. so, so I brought um, within George of the Jungle. It starts with uh, George of the Jungle, uh, interestingly enough. And then there's like a, like a car racing cartoon, kind of in the wacky races vein, called Tom Slick. And then there is a cartoon called Super Chicken. Okay, let's watch a little bit of it. When you find yourself in danger, when you're threatened by a stranger, when it looks like you will take a licking, <laughs> there is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just call for Super Chicken. But if you're afraid, you'll have to overlook it. Besides, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. He will drink his super sauce and throw the bad guys for a loss And he will bring them in alive and kicking <laughs> There is one thing you should learn when there is no one else to turn to Call the super chicken Call the super chicken <laughs> Was there Frankenstein like a- in there? <laughs> There was there was a there was there was a little uh, stock photography in there, but uh, first of all, maybe the greatest uh, theme in television history. Yeah, I mean, I, whoever wrote those themes, I mean, George of the Jungle ain't half bad either. That's pretty no. much all anyone remembers about George of the Jungle. <laughs> good, uh, they're good cartoons, though. But those were uh, those were really really important cartoons in, uh, in not only my childhood but in my entire life. Um, in probably 1970. Oh, no, Stephen, hold on. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole. Like, like Masters of the Universe is really important in my life, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend that anyone watch it. <laughs> <laughs> George of the Jungle and Super Chicken, though, are actually very, very funny cartoons. Just the way people celebrate Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, how did How did it affect your life? Well, I, I first saw it uh, on TV uh, when I was a little kid, probably seven or eight, in uh, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. 
Okay, because I knew, I knew that was going to get a reaction because it got a reaction earlier. Um, but uh, Channel 61 in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, played, uh, played old syndicated cartoons and stuff. And I was a kid. I was sick at home. And uh, uh, the opening strain, as you know, to the George of the Jungle theme, which is what, just, what kicked off the show, was boom, 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 boom. And it started, I was just like watching TV. Like my parents had like trudged a TV up to my room. And, and that, the, that drum beat started and my parents barged through the door frantically like, where did you get that? And, and like it was suddenly like I was privy to something cool and funny that none of my friends knew about. And I would say that my entire life has been an extension of that moment. <laughs> well, Stephen Thompson, Linda Holmes, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye, and thank you for the wonderful recommendation. Stephen Thompson recommends George of, the Ju- George of the Jungle, and specifically Super Chicken. And Linda Holmes recommends that we watch uh, a, uh, a romantic comedy starring Daniel Radcliffe called What If... You can find them on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. A.O. Scott is a film critic for The New York Times. He's a good one, too. This is what he wrote about the movie... MacGruber. The law of diminishing returns is enforced so stringently that the movie succeeds not only in negating its own comedy, but its very being. Well, I stand before you today to vehemently disagree with Mr. A.O. Scott. MacGruber does not negate its own being. MacGruber exists, and MacGruber is awesome. Okay, here, I'll give you this. It's kind of weird that MacGruber is so awesome. It's based on one of the thinnest Saturday Night Live sketches of all time, a genuine one-joke premise. If you missed it on SNL, I can summarize real quick. MacGruber is like MacGyver, but bad. He's bad MacGyver. Not evil MacGyver, incompetent MacGyver. Every sketch, he has to defuse a bomb, but he's bad at it, and he gets distracted, and the bomb blows up, and everyone dies. On the MacGruber Wikipedia page, there is literally a table with the dates that the sketch aired and the things that distracted MacGruber in each sketch. Alcoholism, co-worker gossip, fear of aging. So, yeah, maybe, like in a grand sense, it was a bad idea to make this movie. Except that, no. As it turns out, it was a totally fantastic idea to make this movie. Just imagine a beautifully realized action film from 1989. Val Kilmer's the bad guy. Powers Booth is in it. The very gorgeous Ryan Phillippe is his kind of by-the-book sidekick. And at the center of all of this is Will Forte as the most horrible law enforcement official you could possibly imagine. The plot is Val Kilmer killed MacGruber's wife, so MacGruber has to get the old gang back together for one last job. MacGruber, I thought you were dead. <laughs> ah, 
Last time I saw you, you had a grenade launcher in one hand and an M16 in the other. And you had just ripped a dude's throat out with your bare hands. Classic MacGruber. So, uh, looks like you're keeping your bod pretty tight. You're looking pretty good yourself. Well, every day's a workout when you gotta carry around a 20-pound python in your jeans. You and your d comments. It's fun to say them. It's fun to hear them. That's why I say them. And that's why I listen. Well, we had some good times together, didn't we? We had some great times. We're about to have some more. Uh-oh. I know that look. I need you, Frank. Be serious. I'm putting together a team. Then I'm in. He loads all these dudes and all their guns into a van, and he brings them to a landing strip at the magic hour to present them to the big brass. We understand you recruited quite a team. Quite a team? Yeah, you could say that. Frank Corver, Tanker Lutz, Tut Beamer, Tug Phelps, Vernon Freedom, moi. Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty good team. <clears throat> Look, Mac, are you sure you won't change your mind about letting Piper here join you? He'd make a hell of an asset. Uh, I would love to. But the van's pretty full. You see, it's filled with American heroes, with over a hundred years of combined combat experience and a whole lot of brotherhood. And no, you can't ride in the trunk, bud. Because the trunk is filled with over 75 pounds of homemade C4 explosive that I personally packed in there with my own two. The director of the movie, Yorma Tacone, is just an incredible craftsman. So incredible that despite the fact that it was made on a Saturday Night Live sketch movie budget, MacGruber's kind of a great action movie, like really nice to look at, a real movie. And then at the center of it is this bizarro madman. As far as I'm concerned, Forte's greatest gift is this sweet, lonely soulfulness. He can do anything on screen, no matter how bizarre or self-interested, and you find yourself just looking into his eyes and forgiving him. MacGruber, the character's self-regard, swings wildly between high and low. One second he's cocksure, he's jumping behind the wheel of his red Miata and punching the stereo button for the soft rock station. A few minutes later, he's on his knees, begging for help from a guy whose nose he broke, like... Five minutes earlier. I'm so sorry. I'm so damn sorry. I got freaking out here. I killed them. I killed them all. I'm so stupid. I don't know what I'm doing and everybody hates me. And also, basically, every time MacGruber gets back into a corner... He offers to perform a sex act on whoever is backing him into the corner, like in pathetic graphic detail. For 99 minutes, this sweet, horrible, scared little boy runs through this action movie sowing insanity. He doesn't know how to use a gun, like literally doesn't know how guns work. He has sex with a ghost. His number one combat move is taking off his clothes and putting a stalk of celery in his butt. MacGruber is a silly, vulgar, 
profane, absurd movie. But it's also something like beautiful. So I say, bless you, MacGruber, and let the throat ripping begin. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Pretty cool, right? Bet you weren't expecting that. Yeah, that was really disgusting. Well, get used to it, because that's my main move. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci, known as Danny G. Our production assistant, Chrissy Chris Duenas. Our senior producer, Colin Soup Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries. They gave us our theme music. And if you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Go to MaximumFun.org. And hey... Hold on. Pay attention to the credits for once in your life. If this isn't enough pop culture magic for you, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket, a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. This week, my good friend, academic and DJ Oliver Wang is hosting the program. Oliver, let me ask you this. What's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Coming up on this week's show, we conduct a Pop Rocket post-mortem on the summer blockbuster season. Mm. We have not one, but two special guests, Riley Silverman and Devin Faraccia. Oh, sounds pretty good. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.